See you next week. Good morning, Woodland Hills. So good to be here with all you guys worshiping together. And hello. Oh, yeah, we probably won't need this. We've been having microphone issues, so I'm insisting on having a backup all the time. Last service, we had issues. Steve blamed it on me. He's our sound guy. Says, I got my thing sweaty. Can you believe that? Me, sweat. Like I ever sweat. Crying out loud. Okay, so I'll put that back here just in case. Hey, before I start, I want to give this little announcement. Um, the, we're having a party this Friday. You can tell we're a party in church. We're all having these parties. This Friday, I know we got some partiers here. Uh, we have this thing. Here's the thing. We're talking about hospitality. And one of the groups, one of the population segments, segments of the population that is least welcomed or feels least welcomed in the broader society are, are people with, with significant mental or physical disabilities. And, and so we partner with a ministry that, that just throws a party once a month where we invite folks who have disabilities and folks who don't have disabilities to come together and take off all of our labels and just have a ton of fun. And I'm telling you, it is, it, it, it is so fun and it, it, it's always felt like a sacred moment to me. It's, 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 it's fun. It's, it's sacred fun. There, there you go. It's sacred fun. It's a, it's a holy moment. It's the kingdom. Uh, and, and if you're a dancer, this is the place to come because, man, we, 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 we lay it down, do we not? I always got to bring two shirts because I do sweat. And when I dance, I get crazy. And that's the fun thing is that, that everyone's acting crazy. And so it's, it's just fun. It's just fun. I encourage you to come. And, and you walk in, it'll seem kind of strange at first because it's new to you, whatever. But just start talking to somebody and watch how you fit in right away. All right. Oh, the other thing I want to say is, I think we're forgetting that we have a hashtag of starting this series. Uh, the hashtag is WHU before me. And so when you have any thoughts you want to share, any insights, any questions, any whatever, any quotes, uh, uh, just put it on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram or whatever, and use that hashtag uh, uh, WHU before me. We were like really active for the first two or three weeks and then it kind of dropped off. I think we're forgetting. So I'm reminding, use the hashtag. All right. All righty there then. So, this morning, I would like to uh, take a look at a whole chapter. It's Acts chapter 10, a significant chapter. Because this is the chapter where the Gentiles, for the first time, are going to be hearing the gospel. It's a significant chapter, a major turning of the uh, advance of the kingdom in the early church. What's interesting is that Jesus, just before he ascended, in Matthew 18, uh, his last words were, I want you to go into all nations and teach them and make disciples of them, and baptize them. And uh, usually, you know, if, if, if I really want you to remember something, I'll save it to last. Okay, here's the last thing. When you leave out, just remember this one thing. Go to all nations and teach them, make disciples. So Jesus says that, and he ascends. Five years later, which is when Acts 10 takes place, roughly five years later, these early disciples, these Jewish disciples, are still hanging out in Jerusalem. Uh, Philip made up there to Samaria two chapters earlier, but that's about it. They're not going into all the nations. So it seems like Jesus' instructions, his last instructions, uh, that were so important to him, it seems like they fell, they fell on deaf ears, as teachings sometimes do. You can only receive what your, your, your heart's willing to accept. And it's not hard to understand why his teachings fell on deaf ears. It's because the Jews had a deep prejudice against Gentiles. On the whole... There's some exceptions, but on the whole, they viewed the Gentiles as unclean, uh, as, as inferior, as outside of having anything to do with God, and, and even as dogs. They sometimes refer to them as dogs. So there's a tremendous racism 
uh, and, the, and the perception of first century Jews. And so the idea that they're supposed to bring the good news out to these Gentiles was just, at a deep level, offensive to them, and I think they just didn't want to hear that, so they didn't. And so what, what we find going on in Acts chapter 10 is that to break this stronghold of racism that is gripping the early church and keeping it from reaching out to Gentiles, God's going to come down and do a number on Peter. Uh, and just kind of some brain adjustment there to free him to be able to preach the um, uh, gospel to the Gentiles. What's in, for us, what's significant about this, this, this chapter is that there's several lessons embedded in it that have to do with hospitality. And so I'm going to kind of unpack this, this chapter and in the process bring out three different things that it teaches us about kingdom hospitality. So this message is called, very creatively, Lessons in Hospitality. <laughs> lessons in Hospitality. I know, I'm just so clever. I, I don't want to read the whole chapter, so I'll, I'll kind of give the backstory, and then we'll zoom in and pick up the narrative at the, the crucial points. So in Acts 10, what we find is this. There's this guy named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. Uh, in fact, he's a, he's a Roman centurion, which is a leader in the Roman army. And if there's no love lost between Jews and Gentiles to start with, there's certainly no love lost between Roman centurions and, and Jews. Um, these are the leaders of the army that's, that's oppressing us. But Cornelius, while he's a commander in the Roman army, he's a godly man. It says he was a God-fearer, which is a term that was used of Gentiles who believed the Jewish faith, or at least had faith in the one God that the Jews were always talking about. So he, he, he believed in that. And he prayed all the time. He gave alms, it says. And he was, looked, he, he, he was known among Jews as, as a rare Roman centurion that is favorable to the Jewish nation. And so his reputation was really good. And, and his prayer and his alms and all that just indicated that he had a heart that was open to the gospel. So one time in prayer, an angel shows up, freaks the kajibers out of Cornelius, as angels usually do. Uh, but once the angel gets him to chill and settle down a little bit, he gives him some instruction. He says, here's the thing. Um, the Lord wants you to send, go over into Joppa, uh, this town's about 30 miles away, and on the sea, on the sea coast, you'll find a guy. Uh, his, 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 he's in the house of Simon the Tanner, and um, uh, you're looking for a guy named Peter. Peter, who's a guest in the, Simon, the, uh, Simon the Tanner, the house of Simon the Tanner. And so go there, and now he has some things to say to you, and I want you to listen to him. So Cornelius does that. He sends over two servants and a guard to make the 30-mile journey uh, to, find, uh, to find Peter in the household of Simon the Tanner. Now, at the same time that's happening, God's starting to work on Peter. And uh, um, Peter is, is praying while this is happening, and he's up on the roof of the household of Simon the, the, the Tanner. Now, when I say he's up on the roof, don't think, you know, our kind of roofs. He's not praying on that, like holding on for dear life. Oh, God! No, he, it's, it's flat. All their houses were, had flat tops. And, and praying on the rooftop was, was, was really common, especially among uh, the peasant class, uh, because the houses weren't very big, and they weren't ventilated at all. And so if you wanted any kind of privacy, you had to get away on, on the rooftop. And so it was a common place for people to pray. Uh, you can't get any kind of peace and quiet down there. Um, and so this, this is where you go. Today, people you know, use the bathroom the same way, right? They, they, if, if, there's a guy I know who has a lot of kids and a house that's too small for him. And he says, I got to pray. I got to go in the bathroom and, and just lock myself in there. It's the only time I have guaranteed privacy. It's a pretty good strategy if you think about it, you know. The Bible says to, to come before the throne boldly. Boom, ching. I mean, I was going to raise some questions with the kids, though. It's like, you know, why does daddy take an hour to poop? Um, <laughs> Well, he's calling on God. <laughs> so, 
So, so when the kids would hear dad calling on God in the bathroom, they don't know whether he's being pious or he's got intestinal issues. Oh, God. So anyways, so here's the thing that, that, that he, he's up there praying and he, he gets hungry. Around noon, he's starting to get hungry. And then he has this vision. It's a bizarre vision. There's this big like bed sheet, a, a spread that's coming down from the heavens. And on this spread, this sheet, are all sorts of animals that the Old Testament identifies as unclean. In the Old Testament, if you eat these kind of animals, uh, then you're defiled. It's actually an abomination. And so Jews had very strict kosher laws about what you could or couldn't eat. So this sheet's coming down with all these animals that Peter would have looked at as disgusting, as repulsive. This is gross. But then he hears a voice, the voice of God. And God says, I want you to eat some of those animals. And Peter says, no way. I've ne- my lips have never touched anything profane. I'm not about to start now. This would have been, I mean, he's hungry, but he's not that hungry. Nothing could make him hungry enough to eat one of these kind of animals. He's disgusted with this. And then God says, oh, well, by the way, I'm God. And, and if I call something unclean, you're not allowed to say it's un. If I say something's clean, you're not allowed to call it unclean. Um, Try to put Peter in his place. Now, Peter is understandably confused by this. Uh, part of it's his, his, the revulsion of eating these kind of animals. That would have been hard for him. But on top of that, he believes in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament goes into very meticulous detail about what you can and can't eat. Read, I think it's Leviticus 18. It just goes on and on and on and on and on about what you can eat and what you can't eat, and, 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 and if you eat the unclean food, you're, you're defiled, and it's an abomination. So I imagine that had to create some theological confusion. I believe, I believe the Old Testament, uh, and I'm supposed to only eat clean animals, but now you're telling me I'm supposed to eat that all animals are clean. I can eat any, any of it. And Jesus, by the way, taught the same thing. He said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of the mouth. But uh, this is going to create some theological confusion. Which God do I believe, the past or the present? It might create some confusion here among some of you. And I'd love to address that confusion. I really would. Uh, but if, see, if I were to address that question, I would, the rest of the sermon would be on that. And, and we'd have a sermon on how to interpret the Old Testament and not a sermon on hospitality, which would make my sermon prep team angry. Mary would be all angry. Tomorrow morning, I'd come in here, I'd be in hot water. And I don't like to be in hot water. I'm in hot water enough as it is. So I'm going to keep on preaching on this. So that's a question that you have. Uh, I encourage you to check out a book out in the gathering area called Cross Vision, which will address every question you've ever had. That's the end of my infomercial. Okay, so here's why God is doing this. God's doing this because he's showing Peter that the distinction between clean and unclean animals is invalid because he declares everything to be clean. And he's doing that to try to get Peter to see that the distinction between clean and unclean people is invalid because God has declared all of them to be clean because of the cross. And for the Jews, for Jews, those two things were wrapped up together. I mean, one of the clearest evidences that you have that Gentiles are unclean is that they eat unclean, disgusting food. But God is saying, no, the food they eat is clean. And in fact, they are clean. He's giving them a reframe for all of this. Um, and, and he's trying to free Peter from his racist mindset to bring the gospel uh, to, to, to the Gentiles. But that's never an easy task. If you've ever tried to free someone from a racist mindset, it, it's, it's hard going. It's even hard for God. Uh, the text says that Peter had to get this vision, the same vision, three times. The exact same vision. And it doesn't recount each time because that would be redundant. But it's, it, he had to get this vision three times. Uh, now, and that tells us a lot about God. You know, God could have, he has the power, doesn't he, to just say, oh, I'll just control some neurons here and get Peter to think the right way. I'll correct that racist attitude. There, it's corrected. He could have just coercively changed Peter, but he doesn't do that. He never does that. 
Uh, he works with Peter. He respects Peter's personhood. And so he's going to try to reason with him. He's going to try to illustrate something. He's given them these visions. And, and you just imagine God up there. You know, he, he sends the first vision. And it's, he tells Peter, I'm God. They're clean. Eat it. But Peter doesn't get it. He won't do it. And I have no idea what angel was in charge of vision production that day, but he turns to that angel and says, okay, run it again, run it again. Same exact thing, just throw it at him. Oh, he still didn't get it. God, Peter's so sick. Like, run it again, run it again. And I bet God would have done that 418 times if that's what it took to get through to Peter. But he's a, God, he's a patient God who operates through influential means, respecting the personhood of others. And so he's going to wait till Peter finally gets it. After the third vision, it seems like Peter starts to get it. Um, it says he's, he's, he's pondering this. He's puzzled over that third vision. So he's not quite there. But then the guys that Cornelius sent over show up at, at the house. And they're crawling at the gate. We're looking for Peter. Is this Simon the Tanner's house or whatever? And then we pick the narrative up at verse 20. So Peter came down from the roof, down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they answered, well, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. They tell him, okay, an angel sent us here because we're supposed to listen to what you have to say. So Peter invites them in. Now, that, that's noteworthy for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that a Jew, an Orthodox Jew would never invite a Gentile into their house, nor would an Orthodox Jew ever go into the Gentile, a Gentile's house. Uh, to, to invite unclean into your house makes your house unclean. Or to go into a, the house of an unclean person makes you unclean. You're defiled. You have to go through a ceremonial cleansing and things like that. So the fact that Peter was willing to do that shows that that third vision is getting through. He's, he's, he's acting in some countercultural ways. Second reason why this is interesting, Peter invites these three strangers in for lodging, which means you're going to give them food and shelter. They're going to sleep overnight. And he does that even though this isn't his house. <laughs> hey, you can come stay at my, my, my friend's house. Uh, stay overnight. Eat as much as you want. Sure. <laughs> One of the lessons I don't want you to take away from this passage is that you should ever do that. <laughs> Never invite strangers into someone else's house and to have someone else's dinner and sleep in someone else's bedroom before you get their permission. All right? He didn't even get Simon's permission. He just did it. So don't do that. But you, there's things you, that you should do. Uh, and and uh, I, I wonder what Simon was thinking at this time. Because Simon's you know, a Jew and, and um, he hasn't had that vision. He hasn't been enlightened. He doesn't know about God's all-inclusive kingdom. And, and so he still sees these people as dirty dogs. And now Peter just invited them into your house. Wonderful. Defiling your house. And what are the neighbors going to think? Oh, what's going to It's terrible. Um, Peter, he goes along with it, I think, out of respect for Peter, because Peter's an apostle. So he must know what he's doing. But I imagine he was getting a little bit freaked out. But it, it, it's, it's, it, it's also significant for this reason, that Simon the Tanner... Yeah, he's a, a tanner of animal hides, and, and that would make him a working-class peasant, most likely, unless he was a very successful, and there were a few examples of that. But they didn't usually have very big houses. Their houses were rather small. That's why you have to pray up on the roof. And, and uh, we know Peter's already staying as a guest there. If, if Simon the Tanner was anything like ordinary people in those days, he would have had a wife and maybe his kids and maybe even some other family living with him. So there's not a whole lot of space, and yet... Peter invites these three, three strangers to stay there, even though it's already crowded. And the, the, the question I want to ask is, would we do that? 
Now, I suspect that everybody listening to this in the auditorium and on the podcast, if you're honest with yourself, you would at least hesitate. And some of the hesitation is legitimate, and some of it maybe isn't. Here's what's legitimate. Um, we don't live in the same culture as they had back then. They had a whole tradition around hospitality, which we unfortunately have lost. And so inviting somebody in on your house to have dinner, let alone to sleep overnight, it means something in our culture that it didn't mean necessarily mean back then. And so since we live in this culture, we have to use some discernment about how we apply this first century thing to, our, to our, our, ourselves. We have to have some discernment about this and some wisdom. Uh, there's a, a delightful, young, passionate, Jesus-loving family that I know who really felt called by God to leave the suburbs and move into the city. That's just where they felt they were called to live. And so they, they, they get nestled away in the city. They're starting to learn the ropes a little bit. And the wife encounters her first homeless person. And this guy tells her a really sad story about how he ended up on the street. And this woman has just got a heart of gold. And so she just immediately says, well, look, we have a spare bedroom. Uh, you could come and stay with us. And then, but the minute those words came out of her mouth, all of a sudden she remembered, oh, I've got two small children, and I don't know a thing about this guy. How do you know he's not a pedophile? How do you? And, and it, so now it gets kind of awkward. Um, look, if God tells you to invite that stranger in to stay and dine at your house, then you obey God. But if you don't have a direct directive from God, uh, I would encourage you to start with a, some little smaller steps towards hospitality. Be hospitable. But start, you know, before you run the whole marathon, you got to go to the first yard. So you know, get some incremental steps to get to know the person a little bit before you invite them in to stay under the same roof as your two young children. So that's legitimate. To use this term is legitimate. But see, some of us, I think, if, if we're faced with this, our hesitation might be due to something like this. Somebody I don't know is going to come into my house and oh my gosh, my house is a wreck. It's a total wreck. I haven't swept the floor in weeks. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, the, the, the light switch doesn't work. The, the toilet's clogged and clogged because and, dad's spending an hour in there every time he goes. And, and we can't find a remote control for the TV. You can't have people watching TV without a remote control. I mean, we'd have to, have to get up and turn the channel. And there's a crack in the window and blah, 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 blah. Give me at least a week a heads up on this, all right? I got I to gotta get my house in order. Uh, it's what, what I called the first, in the first message in the series, I called Martha Stewart Hospitality. Because Martha Stewart Hospitality is all about presentation. It's all about kind of dazzling your guests. Uh, and it, 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 it's, yeah, it's, it's all about you know, impressing folks with, 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 with what you put out. Now, that's not altogether bad. I'm, I, I don't want to make a, I don't want to vilify Martha Stewart. Uh, some people do that for family, friends. It's a way of making them feel special. You put out your best. And I'm not going to totally invalidate that. But it becomes a problem if it ever gets in the way of our practicing kingdom hospitality. And I think it often does. We feel like we've got to have it a certain way. It's got to look a certain way. It's got to, it's got to just dazzle if, before anyone can see it. And there's sometimes an ego that can be wrapped up in that. Which brings us to the first lesson to extract from this narrative. And it's this. The kingdom hospitality is about reality. It's never about presentation. Never about impressing. Never about dazzling. It's just about reality. Kingdom hospitality has got nothing to do with presentation, dazzling, or, or, or impressing people. Kingdom hospitality is rather just about this. It's about inviting the stranger to whatever degree you deem appropriate. Inviting the stranger in on the, the life that you really have, not the life that you wish you had, or the life that you try to present to others. It's about reality. Kingdom hospitality is about nothing other than you being nothing more or less than who you really are, and you're making space for the stranger to be nothing more or less than who they really are. That's what kingdom hospitality is all about. 
It's about sharing your life and sharing your stuff with strangers, regardless of how much or how little of it you have. So I encourage us to, to never let Martha Stewart hospitality get in the way of our, the blessing that you'll receive by practicing kingdom hospitality. I encourage us never to think that, that what you have is too little or too small or too messy or, or you don't have enough food or you don't have enough time or you don't have enough space or you're act, you don't have your act together enough in order to, some, to invite someone else in on it. Never think that. Never, ne- never assume that what you have, your house, your family, your church, your friends, your social network, it's just not perfect enough for people. It's not clean enough. It's not tidy enough. It's not respected enough or what have you. No, no, no. If, if you have a heart that's willing to share with others, if you have a heart that's willing to share with others, however much or how little you have, it is enough. It is enough. Just invite folks in on that and share it. The little you have, it is enough. It's the sharing of your life that makes it a kingdom thing. And Martha Stewart might not agree with that, but Jesus would. And I'll take Jesus over Martha Stewart any day of the week. Amen? All right. So uh, they stay overnight at Simon the Tanner's house. And the next morning, they head out to go back to Caesarea, where Cornelius lives. Um, And what we have going on here is that the three people that Cornelius sent and Peter and six others now are going to join them as they go to this Gentile's house, this centurion's house over in Caesarea. So they go there, they come to the gate, and and Cornelius meets them there. And he and Peter start chatting as they walk back into the house. And and Cornelius' house, probably unlike Simon the Tanner's house, Cornelius, he's a muckety-muck. He's a somebody. He got some money. He's a centurion. And so they have a whole assembly hall where where you could fit a large number of people. And there are a large number of people there because Cornelius invited family and friends and everything. So think of it kind of like a theater. And then we pick the passage up in verse 27. It says, As he talked with him, as Peter talked with Cornelius, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. And what he's saying there is he's saying it's unlawful for us. Gentiles didn't have any hang-ups about that, but the Jews did. So So you're probably surprised that I'm here. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Because the cross, as we saw in the last couple weeks, has made it all clean. Wiped the slate clean. Never call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask you why you sent for me? So it took Simon five years and three visions to finally get it, but he's he's getting this kingdom. He's starting to get the all-inclusive nature of the kingdom, which is breaking his racist grid, the racist grid by which he views people. He's starting to get it. He's starting to realize that the cross has completely obliterated any kind of us-them, inside-outside distinction. Any kind of clean, unclean distinction. He's starting to get that, that on the cross, Jesus made everybody insiders. And, and we're to treat them as such and see them as such and welcome them as such. He's finally starting to get it. He, he's starting to see that in Christ, there's a new creation, as we've been talking about. Behold, everything old has passed away. Behold, everything is new. Peter's starting to get that. But here's the thing that's interesting. Though Peter's got that revelation, and he, he's only on this trip because of that revelation... And the three people that Cornelius sent have told him that the reason why God sent them over there is because they're supposed to listen to him. So Peter has got a pretty good idea why he's there. They told him why he's coming. But even though Peter has got good reason to think he knows why he's there, he nevertheless asked Cornelius, why have you sent for me? He doesn't assume that he knows what the reason is until he talks to Cornelius. And he, he puts Cornelius in the driver's seat. I'm not going to assume I know anything. You tell me. 
Why did you send for me? He's saying, you tell me, how can I serve you? And that brings us to a second principle, a very, very important principle when it comes to kingdom hospitality, and that is never assume you know what a stranger wants or needs. Never assume that. Um, and there is a tendency, especially for us Westerners, to, to do that. We think we know. So many individuals and so many organizations have harmed the very people they're trying to help because they assumed they knew what the people needed. It, you, you, you can do more damage than help when you just barge in. It's sort of the, I'm the rescuer, I'll save you, and we think we know. Uh, here's one example of this. I could give you a thousand, uh, but here's one. So in Haiti in 2011, they had a devastating earthquake. Port-au-Prince was pretty much leveled. It was just terrible. And so a lot of aid organizations around the globe wanted to help, and that's great. They want to help. And so they start sending stuff. Unfortunately, most of these organizations, or at least a good portion of them, don't first talk to the people on the ground, the authorities on the ground, to say, hey, what are you in need of? How can we help? Uh, what should we send and what should we not send? They don't do that. They just assume they know. And so they start sending stuff. They start sending a lot of food, tons of food, which is really good because right after an earthquake, you're going to need a lot of emergency food. That's great. Trouble is, is that they keep sending it. And they keep sending it. Some are still sending it. And you might think, well, no, that's just, they're so generous. No! See, here, here's, here's the thing. Yeah, that, that, would, look, that would look like the, the, a good thing, but the farmers in Haiti, hardly any of them were, were very much affected by the earthquake at all. They're all out there in the rural areas. They, they didn't get affected by the earthquake. So they're still growing crop, and they're still raising animals, and they're still, they're still making food. Only trouble is that now no one will buy it. Why? Because they're getting it free. From all the handouts that people are sending that way. So now the whole country becomes dependent on outside organizations, including the farmers who are now unemployed, and the whole infrastructure and the economy has been damaged because of this. In fact, the infrastructure and economy of Haiti, uh, at least according to many people, is worse now than it was before the earthquake. The, the helping organizations are hurting because they don't first ask, what do you need? What, what would have been great if they had some subsidies to for the people to buy the food from the farmers. Help the economy, help the local economy. But see, when you assume that you know, when you don't really know, you end up hurting more than you end up helping. A great documentary on this, folks, is it's really eye-opening. It's called Poverty, Inc. Has anyone seen that? Yeah, isn't that powerful? It is just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it really educates you a lot about the giving industry. It highlights the importance of, of listening and asking before you assume that you know what you're going to do. Just, just ask and, and listen. L put them in the driver's seat. And that's just a way of respecting their personhood. And, and, and even if you think you know, do like Peter did. Ask anyways. You might find out that, that you really didn't know. It also highlights the importance of this. If, if you're going to volunteer in any uh, aid organization or donate to any aid organization, I encourage you to first find out what their modus operandi is. Uh, are they, in fact, an organization that uh, takes the marching orders of what they're supposed to do from the people on the ground? from authorities? Do they talk with these people to find out what they really need? Uh, and are they empowering the people to get back on their feet and independent as quick as possible? Because that's great. Or are they an organization that, however sincere they are, they inadvertently create their own job security by creating dependence on them? And, and if that's the case, I encourage you to go look for an organization that empowers people. Um, handouts can often be very, very damaging. Amen. Amen. So in our life, I encourage us, uh, when we're developing relationships, never assume you know. Always ask. Be curious. Be inquisitive. Ask questions. Be humble about that. So, so 
Peter asks Cornelius, why am I here? And Cornelius tells him exactly what his guard has said. We're here to listen to you. Tell us what God's put on your heart. And so Peter starts to preach. But it's one of the shortest sermons in history because he only gets about four lines into it. And then God interrupts him. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles in this powerful, powerful way, just like on the day of Pentecost. And these Gentiles, whom these Jews formerly saw as dirty dogs, they're speaking in tongues and they're prophesying. And it's just as obvious as can be that these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. The whole crowd of them. And then we pick up the narrative in, in verse 47. Here's what it says. Then Peter said, in light of what we just witnessed, can anyone withhold the water, of bapti- water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then he invited them to stay there for several days. So, so they witnessed the Holy Spirit being poured out in unmistakable ways. It's got to be blowing their minds. Um, and then Peter says, well, look it. If, if God poured his Spirit out on these people, that means God's welcoming them, them into the kingdom community. He, he's, he's incorporated them into the bride of Christ, just like he did it with us. So that means they need to have a wedding ceremony just, as, 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 just like us. And that's what baptism is. It's, it's the ceremony by which you're betrothed to Jesus. You are joining the bride of Christ. So if, if God's included them, I guess we've got to include them. We have been withholding this from them. That's why he puts it like that. He's now realizing we've been holding out on these Gentiles. We've been forbidding this, that not only baptism, but the, the, everything to do with the gospel. We've been withholding it, and now we realize that God has included them, so we must include them, and the ceremony by which we do that is baptism. So they baptize these folks, and then Cornelius invites them to stay for a while. Uh, this is a really important point. That, this would have been difficult for these Jews. You know, up until two days ago, they didn't talk to Gentiles, and now they're going to talk with them for a cu- couple days straight. And up until a few days ago, they didn't eat with Gentiles, but now they're going to be spending, having dinners with them for a couple of days. And up until a few days ago, they would never go into a Gentile's house. And now they're going to spend a couple of days in this Gentile's house, not just a Gentile, but a Roman centurion. I mean, this is like immersion cross-cultural experience. And, and this would be a lot for these people to process and a lot to handle. And remember, while they now have witnessed the Spirit being poured out on these Gentiles, only Peter got that revelation. Uh, and so the, his fellow Jews have got to be like trying to, I mean, their heads had to be spinning. And it would have been understandable if they would have said, oh, Cornelius, you're such a nice centurion, but uh, we got to get back to Jaffa. You know, we've got, my wife's going to kill me. It's something. Give some reason. Like, no thanks. We've had enough of our cross-cultural experience already. Mine's kind of blown. Can't handle anymore. Don't want brain matter on the walls. But they accept it. They accept it, and this says everything. This is so significant. It brings us to the third lesson that we need to get from this passage, and that is this. Um, that, that the kingdom is always, it always involves reciprocity. It always, it's always a two-way street. It's, it should never be, maybe in emergency situations, it's a one-way thing temporarily, but it always, generally speaking, it's, it's a two-way thing. To be a good giver of hospitality, you've got to be willing to accept hospitality. Now, here's why this is so important. That there is a long tradition in America of people, and I, I gotta say it, especially white people, who the mindset is sort of like, we are the light on a hill, we are the exceptional nation, we are the ones who got it down, and we're gonna go and help everybody else. Uh, and they, they mean it sincerely, but the attitude is uh, that, that you know, here we come to save the day. That means that white people are on their way. And, and, and it, it, it's a uh, and the long tradition of this, and it's still with us to this day. It's still with us to this day. It, it's probably best expressed in this poem, 1899 poem by Raynard Kipling, called Take Up the White Man's Burden. 
And, and this was a poem that was written right after America had uh, 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 captured the, the Philippines. And, and this was a poem that was kind of encouraging us to now go and colonize them. The whole colonization period was about us exporting our culture onto others. We never import it. We just export it. And so this is a call to take up the white man's burden and help these people in the Philippines. And I'm going to read you two stanzas of it. I'll warn you ahead of time that it's rather painful. But we need, this is history, and we just need to deal with it. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best you breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild. Your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Take up the white man's burden. I can hear the groans. The savage wars of peace. Fill full the mouth of famine and bid the sickness cease. And when your goal is nearest the end for others sought, watch sloth and heathen folly bring all your hopes to naught. Oh, those unappreciative half-devil, half-child captives of ours. How unappreciative. You know, you work so hard. This is the white man's burden. You, you work so hard and, and, and they make progress, so you think. But then their own, their own folly and sloth. It brings an end to everything you do. And yet we persevere because this is the white man's burden. Folks, this, this mindset, well, I, I don't think anyone would express it as blatantly as Kipling did 120 years ago. But this mindset is still very much alive and well. As is evidenced by the fact that so many organizations don't think they need to ask people what they need before they try to meet that need. The, the, the assumption behind this whole thing, I mean... Among the other things that's wrong with this condescending racist attitude is, is that, that it assumes that we have much to offer you, but you have nothing to offer us. You are in need of us, but we don't need you. Uh, we have much to teach you, but you have nothing to teach us. And, and, and it presupposes a white superiority. We're, it, this isn't a relationship among equals. It's a relationship between unequals. It's a, it's a one-way thing. There's no reciprocity here, which means you're, you're not extending hospitality at all. Unless the person that you are welcoming in is being treated as a full human being who's made in the image of God, who's got unsurpassable worth, unless that's going on, then what you're extending is not hospitality. Um, um, it, it, and the, the, the whole thing, the whole mindset presupposes it perpetuates the, the us-them distinction, the insider-outside distinction, the hierarchy that the cross obliterated. All that was done away with the cross. And yet, to, to, to assume that, this idea that we are the saviors, you are the ones in need in saving, and we are the saviors. Well, folks, the cross exposes that as being a lie because the truth is that we all need saving and there's only one who can save us, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? And this idea that, 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 that you have needs, uh, we don't, and so we are the need meters and you are the needy ones, that, that's just, that the cross exposes us all as being desperately in need. We're all needy, and the truth is that God wants to use everybody to meet other people's needs. It, it's, it's never a one-way thing. Yes, God wants to use you to, to, to share with the stranger, to, make them, to welcome them as a friend. God wants to use you to do that. But God also wants to use that stranger to welcome you and, and, and to, to meet needs in your life. And the thing about a lot of Americans and the West in general is that we often don't know what we need. We're, 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 so, we're out of touch with that. And so often in relationships with others, the stranger will not just meet a need, they'll expose the need that you have. And uh, God wants to use them to bless you. It's an equal, it's not like, we the church, no, 
are so gracious to welcome you in. No, we're being served as we do that. It's always a two-way thing. Always remember that. So whenever you're saying hospitality to another, be looking for God to use that person to minister to you in some ways. I, in fact, found it to be the greatest blessing in my life. The, the, about 23, 22, 23 years ago, I, I took my first trip to Haiti and got some Haitian brothers and sisters here. Good to have you here. Woods for the first time. Just learning English. Love you guys. And, and um, he, 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 I think, it, looking back on it, we, we ran a home. I and some friends had a home for uh, six Haitian kids whose parents couldn't afford to raise them. And often these kids then are sold into wealthier families and they become household slaves called Restavits. And so we had a home, we put them in a Christian home and, and supported them. And, and, and praise God, they've been through, some of them are nurses now and doctors and a lot of great things happen. But this is my first trip to Haiti. And looking back on it, I think I had some of that white man's burden going on. I think I felt just a little too good about what we were doing. Here we come to save the day. And so we take this trip to Haiti, and we're there for nine days. And I'll tell you, in those nine days, God knocked me off my little white hobby horse. Uh, flick. There you go. Like Saul. He's, um, yeah. yeah I, 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 when I was down there, I just found that, that um, well, for example, I never realized how much I take for granted. I have always thought I was a real grateful person. I try to give thanks for everything, but man, do I take a lot for granted. And hanging out with these folks, everything they just were thankful for. They'd give thanks to God for the littlest thing. And because they didn't have a lot of positive things, so the positive things they had, they just like cherished. The littlest things, they're so grateful for them. And, and uh, no sense of entitlement, like any of these old you or anything. It all comes as gift. And, and just seeing that was, was a marvel. Um, I, I, I never had seen such a depth of joy and peace in the midst of trying circumstances like I saw on this trip. Because I'd never been in circumstances as trying as these people. And seeing that made me feel like a midget among giants. It's like uh, there's a marvel there. And, and, and just learning that is, 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 is possible was, was outstanding. I, I, I found they taught me a lot about trusting God and how little I trust God. I mean, this was, this was one of the big ones. I... I like, I, I suddenly realized when I pray the Lord's Prayer and come to the part where it says, give us this day our daily bread, I never mean it. I'm not really asking God, oh, please supply bread for this day because I got enough money in my wallet and there's a grocery store right down the, the street. So God doesn't enter into the equation. But see, when these Haitians in this little village, when, when they pray this prayer, they mean it. They need God to show up and you know what? God shows up. It's just, it's like God shows up in direct proportion to the degree that you need him. And, and, and there, there, there's, there's just this trust. God will provide. God will provide. And, and it, it continues even when a ton of stuff happens to them where it doesn't look like God's going to provide at all. But they, 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 they just keep with that faith. It's, it's just something that was, was mind-blowing to me. And finally, they told me a whole lot about hospitality. A whole lot about hospitality. Because these folks would invite us in. And, and uh, they, their houses are smaller than my garage. And they don't have much to offer. Yeah, Martha Stewart isn't really popular in Haiti. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, this is worth the price of admission right here. That, that uh, they're kind of way beyond trying to impress anybody or wow anyone or dazzle anyone. Uh, you know, they don't worry about putting up their fine. No, they're just real because this is what they have. But they invite you in and what little they have, they share. And they share with a sense of joy. Like, we're so glad you're here and make you feel welcome. It, it was just mind-blowing. This one family that we stayed at, they had three chickens which was like their most prized possession. Uh, they had little else, and they usually use these chickens for eggs. But when they invite us over, they cooked one of those chickens for us. 
And do you know what a sacrifice? Do you have any, what sacrifice that is? To take one of your three chickens and you're going to now feed it to these guests. And they had a little rice on the side because that's all they had. But that, people who don't even know me would do that for me. It, it, was, just, it was humbling. It was humbling. That's, that's kingdom hospitality, folks. When, when it pinches you a little bit, when it, you sacrifice for the sake of the stranger, that's kingdom hospitality. That's Christ-likeness right there. And, and so here's the deal. Uh, we, we go to this, yeah, we're showing hospitality. We're, we're, uh, we, we bring money. That's one thing we got to offer. And that's why we can support six kids, and that's great. That's what we bring to the table. Uh, but here's what they bring to the table. I learn, about, I learn about trusting God, and I learn about a depth of joy and peace I didn't know before. And I, I, I learn about uh, what hospitality really is. And I learn about gratitude and how to take things for granted. So you tell me. Okay, I bring money, and in return, I, I get these lessons uh, from these giants and realize that I'm a midget. Who, who, who benefited more from this relationship? I, obviously, you couldn't buy that. There's, you couldn't put money on that. And I found this to be the case whenever you... Shelly and I, whenever we've opened up our life in any significant way to strangers, to welcome them in, to walk alongside of them, to whatever degree, the, best, the, the most powerful blessings we've ever had in our life have come out of that. It's, just, it's like God shows up when, when, when we are, step outside of our comfort zone and welcome the stranger. God's in that. Both to use you to bless the stranger, but to use the stranger to bless you. And I'm telling you, the blowback of blessing on us has been way more than we've ever poured into another. It's like God wired it this way. And when you're acting consistent with the truth that's revealed on the cross and treating people as insiders, there are no outsiders, and welcoming them and honoring them and, 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 and treating them the way God treats them and giving them the value that the cross gives them, when you start doing that and you're acting accurately, God shows up in blessed ways and transforms and impacts people. And... Amen, amen. So folks, whenever God is, is, is doing something, leading you to be extend outside your, go outside your comfort zone, don't think of it as you just bringing something to the table to offer them. They've got something to offer you. And that reciprocity is all important. So folks, um, uh, it's, about, it's about reality, never about presentation. Never assume that you know what a person needs. Humbly ask them. And uh, it's got to be reciprocal. It's a two-way street. To be a good giver, you've got to be a receiver. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here, and if you're here this morning and have any need, any need whatsoever that could use prayer, come up here and talk to these folks. They would love to serve you in this capacity. Uh, don't carry that burden alone. And if you're here this morning and are not yet a, a surrendered follower of Jesus, I encourage you to come up here and talk to these folks, and they'll explain to you what it is to become a follower of Jesus and get in on this kingdom stuff. Ah, folks, it's a blessed morning. Uh, as we leave here, can we do it as the people that are committed? to extending the hospitality we receive is the hospitality we're going to give, and we're also going to get it back because it's always reciprocal. And so if you're committed to living in that hospitable, outside-your-own-comfort-zone place, say amen. amen. Remember that hospitality begins at the house of God, so be, always meet one person, welcome one person you didn't know before, make them feel welcome, go out loving your neighbors. God bless you guys. See you next week.